Welcome to Soul Sanctuary. We are uh, absolutely thrilled that you are here to join us this morning. Uh, it is the perfect rainy summer morning. It's been a difficult summer here in Manitoba. We had two weeks of hot weather, and then the rest has been cold and rain. And fall is upon us as you walk outside and you just breathe it in. It smells like fall, but that's good. Today we leave for camp. Uh, that's where, where, yeah, woo, 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 yeah. Uh, we are taking our high school students and our junior high students, and we are headed two hours west of the city for Young and Wild Summer Camp. It's going to be an incredible time together. I mean, I want to thank everybody who has sponsored a student to attend summer camp and making that a reality. And so my name is Jordan. I pastor our high school students here. That's uh, what I do. It's what I love to do. It's been an incredible ride over the course of eight years here at Soul Sanctuary. Uh, today we return in our teaching series to the book of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 24. Nick, come on, man. You are, you are the best. It's only slightly better. We're living that Bush League life today. Thanks. I'm glad you like that. Okay, here we go. This is going to do the job. We'll go, we'll go double table, one for the word, one for the notes, and uh, we're making this happen. Matthew 24. So we're in Matthew 24. What's important about Matthew 24 is that's where we were last week. Pastor Jordan McClellan kicked us off at the beginning of Matthew 24. And today, in, in, uh, in the same manner of how we teach here at Soul Sanctuary, we are going to continue where Pastor Jordan left off. So what we do is we pick a book of the Bible and we walk ourselves through it, verse by verse. This way, we can't skip the hard parts. And today, we're on a hard part. And of course, they're like, Jordan, you teach this part. I'm like, hey, thanks. And so we're in Matthew 24. We're talking about the end times. We don't talk about the end times every week at Soul Sanctuary, but today we do. So buckle in. Um, before I get right into it, which we're, we're, we're about to really get into it in a moment, uh, I just want to throw one random request out there to our community. Uh, it's a big request, but it, if this is where you're at in life and you can meet this need, then that's really cool. Our internship program kicks off in the fall. Uh, so this is a new program that we've launched over the course of the last 12 months here at Soul Sanctuary, slowly rolling it out. We have an intern who plans on coming from out of town, and they're looking for a billet. And so uh, we put this uh, request out to our community before. We got a couple of you interested. Those ones didn't quite work out. But if you have a room in your house and you're willing to billet a young female student, 19 years old, for the Soul Sanctuary internship program, then just come hit me up uh, at any point, and we'd love to chat. Uh, that that will be the, the one uh, the reality that this student needs uh, a billet family in order to move to Winnipeg to make our program happen for her. So uh, if God's speaking to your heart on that, come let me know at some other point or talk to Allison, info at soulsanctuary.ca. Okay, sweet. This morning, Matthew 24, we're getting into it. Today is a mix of teaching and preaching. Uh, teaching is to explain the scriptures and preaching is to really apply them to our lives. What, what do they mean to us? And today's a perfect balance of both because we can't really preach this section of the text without teaching this section of the text. So you're going to need to like dial in your thinking cap here, put it on, buckle in, and, and really it's, it's going to challenge your mind here. We're going we're gonna to wrestle with some grand Christian doctrine concepts before we can really boil it down and be like, what does this mean for me here today? So... To recap what Pastor Jordan talked about, if you were at the lake sun tanning last week and you missed this, you're going to be one step behind the game, but that's okay. Go repent of your sin for being at the lake and not of church and go watch the podcast and it's going to bring you up to speed, okay? So Pastor Jordan talked to us at the beginning of Matthew 24 
Uh, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking out of the temple, and his disciples are like, cool buildings, look at this, this is sweet. And Jesus is like, yeah, this is not going to be around for much longer. And his disciples are like, wait, what? And so his disciples ask him two questions. Jesus says, these buildings, they won't be here much longer. There's, gonna ru- there's ruin that's going to come. His disciples ask him, when will this ruin come? And then they ask him this peculiar question, what will be the sign, Jesus, that you're returning? So last week, we talked about the when. When will the ruin come to the temple? And Pastor Jordan unpacked a whole bunch of weird Christian history, like really weird, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, And and then he also talked about uh, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and how scholars look back to this portion of Matthew 24 and how Jesus begins here. And and those scholars, uh, a large agreement of scholars will say these events that Jesus prophesied that he foretold about have happened when Rome sacked the temple in 70 AD. But then there's this other question that the disciples ask Jesus, which is not when, because now we we put that aside in the first 36 verses. The second question is, what will be the sign of you returning, Jesus? It's kind of like as Jesus walks out of the temple and the disciples, uh, or or when Jesus says these things in the temple, they're walking out, Jesus is like, it's all going to come to ruin. It's like the disciples wait. They wait a couple minutes before nobody else is around. And it's just them and Jesus. And then they can ask Jesus the hard questions. Kind of like, yeah, we follow this guy. He's talking kind of crazy right now. And then we get into a private place and we're like, Jesus, what did you mean? And so Jesus breaks it down for them. In the first 36 chapters, Jordan last week talked about the abomination of desolation, right? Nothing apocalyptic about that language. And he's talking about the fulfillment of Rome coming to sack the temple. Okay. That's last week. The podcast will really enlighten you if you're like, what is he talking about? We pick it up in Matthew 24, verse 36, and it's on the screen for you. And Jesus said, about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Our passage today starts out with a but. It's a moment of turning from one question, what we dealt with last week, and it's the hinge, where now Jesus begins to address the second question. It's the the when question is done away with, and now it's the what is the sign question. The day that Jesus is referring to is the date of his return to earth. His parousia which would mean his advent, or his return, or his coming. The doctrine that we are discussing today is known academically as eschatology. Write it down. It's speech about the end. It's speech about the last things. This is what we're getting into. The idea here is that the same resurrected Jesus who ascended into heaven after his death, and resurrection, will return to the earth at some point in the future as a righteous judge. This idea of Jesus returning to earth after his ascension into heaven is one that's widely attested to throughout the whole scriptures. The church's earliest creeds affirm this. Like like across the board, Christians believe that Jesus is coming back, where the return of the Messiah Comes where Jesus comes, as our creeds state, as a judge of the living and of the dead. 
And here's what's interesting. The disciples have asked him, when is the time of your return? Because the disciples are trying to make sense of who Jesus is. They're trying to make sense of the claims that Jesus has made. Jesus has claimed multiple points, uh, uh, things that associate with his nature of being divine. And his disciples follow him. They believe him. They're strictly monotheistic Jews. They believe in one God. Jesus is not some new God coming. They believe that there is something special about Jesus that links him to God, but they're trying to figure it out. They don't quite know what Jesus leaving the earth will be like yet. Jesus foretells his death to them, and oftentimes they're just stumped, like, what's, like what are you getting at, Jesus? But they do have an understanding that Jesus is coming back. This idea of the end times is one which modern evangelicals love. Pastor Jordan really went into this last week, looking at all these end time theories and, and all these kind of things and, and poking holes in them. But today we're just going to spend uh, about two minutes on this because I think he did it justice last week. We don't need to make those teachers feel worse than they probably already feel after all their failed predictions. Now, Jesus, or, or, or sorry, not Jesus, modern evangelicals, we have a strange fascination with the end of all things. Right, doomsday, Armageddon, the apocalypse. Amen. In fact, our, uh, our interest in these things has become full-blown obsession to the point where it's unhealthy. If you search YouTube for videos about the end times, watch the wa waters that you tread into. Because you're going to end up in dangerous territory pretty quick. You know, like every president of the United States is the Antichrist, right? Forever and always. There's always somebody who's going to believe that. The, uh, uh, people love, like, looking at the Bible. And, you know, they flip to the book of Revelation, and then they take the newspaper, and they compare the two, and they're like, look, what's happening now in Russia is evidence of this in Revelation. And, and the rabbit hole gets really dark and really deep really quick. So Jesus addresses this, and we seem to have lost what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Right at the beginning of Matthew 24, Jesus says, About the day of my return, no one, not even the angels in heaven, nor me, the Son, only God the Father, knows. So, relying again on last week's message and the great work that Pastor Jordan McClellan did, we're going to leave this by resolving this, this question of when does Jesus come back with this. Jesus says to you and to me that no one knows. And we're going to drop it. We're going to leave it. We're going to embrace a little mystery. Here's the thing. I'm a type A and an Enneagram 8 with really strong one tendencies. Now, if you know what that means, that means I need to control everything. All right? Like my life, I need to have everything compartmentalized nicely. And I need to know the answers. I need to be able to study and look and learn and figure out conclusions. Mystery in faith is really hard for me. But this is where Jesus leaves us. The word faith itself has inherently in it mystery. There are some things which we will not know until we are reunited with the Son when He comes. And so in this, we do ourselves no favors by looking at the, the scriptures, looking at the newspaper, making big declarations about when the end of days are going to come. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help anybody. 
Jesus addresses what those people are trying to get at, right? People want to make end times end time predictions because they want to tell you to be ready. But Jesus is about to tell us how to be ready. So our end times predictions, we're going to leave them for the far off, little bit crazy Christians. And today we're going to continue with the words of Jesus, but we're going to rest in a confidence that Jesus says, no one knows, not even me, not me, Jordan, Jesus, right? Not even Jesus knows the time of his return. And I think to claim to know, or even to know in part, is foolishness at best. And it's sin at worst. It denies the mystery present and inherent in the teachings of Jesus. Now, as we go through the scripture, that's not to say that we come across something that we don't fully understand and be like, mystery, moving on. We have a responsibility as Christians to dive into this, to break it apart, to begin to understand it. But this passage starts and ends with Jesus saying, no one knows. And so in this moment, we're like, all right, Jesus, you know. Resurrected Jesus, we'll get there in a second, you know. Right? But Jesus in this moment in his flesh did not know. The son doesn't know. So we got to draw focus back to the text. If I haven't made it clear enough, the son doesn't know. He, Jesus, does not know the day or the hour of his return, but the father in heaven does. So this should raise a question for you sitting there. If Jesus and the Father are one, as we teach here at Soul Sanctuary, as Christians have taught since the beginning of time, as Jesus claimed himself, then how on earth is there something that God the Father knows that Jesus says, I don't know? That's our task this morning. Buckle in. Okay, Christians and not, Christian and non-Christian scholars alike, they agree on this. That if you're making up a religion, it's generally a bad idea to put things in that are going to confuse people. Right? Makes sense? This passage confuses us. Because when we read it with no other background knowledge of who Jesus is or, or, or who Jesus said he was and what happens later in the book of Acts. If we read it, our mind starts to churn. And we need this to be explained. We need to talk about this. Again, these are the things the church is like, this is so easy to skip over. You know, if I didn't have to be studying all week to preach this, it'd be a lot easier week. You know, I'd plan for camp. We'd be more prepared. <laughs> Joking, we're prepared. Your kids are safe. <laughs> but these are the things that make skeptics either doubt and write off Christians as crazy. Why would this even be in their book? Or it's... The thing that makes skeptics go, either they're so crazy, there might just be something to this. And so, here's what we know about Jesus throughout the book of Matthew, through our study so far. That Jesus had been doing some incredible work. Some incredible things characteristic of God himself. Up until this point, Jesus is healing people. Jesus is sitting down with people across across the uh, the well, and he's knowing their life stories before they even tell him a thing. Jesus is walking on water, you know, God-like things. We understand 
from where we are in Matthew and what the other Gospels, Luke, Mark, and John, inform us of, that Jesus is operating in the divine well on earth. So, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit all possess the same being, the same mind, and the same will. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. And perhaps you've heard it said, God is three in one. It is correct to assert then that what the Father knows in heaven, the Son would also know. That's a correct assumption. So when we arrive at Matthew 24 with our understanding that God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are of one person, of, uh, or are of one uh, mind, are of one will, are of one being, then we have to explain it. So we get to it. Jesus has both a human and a divine nature. He has a human nature and a divine nature. We know this, and we know that these natures coexist by what we read in the scriptures. This idea, if you're writing notes, it's called the hypostatic union. It is this tension between human and divine wills living perfectly, uh, uh, perfectly together in the one Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus holds at the same present time two natures. We're going slow here. We're all going to be on the same page. Human and divine. To believe that Jesus is who he said he is, we must acknowledge his divine claims. He makes divine claims straight throughout the Gospels. In John 8, in so many places, in Matthew 2, he either alludes to or explicitly makes divine claims. Jesus has a divine nature. He has a human nature in so much as he is present, walking on earth. History tells us that Jesus was here. The Bible tells us what Jesus did. Jesus has a human nature and a divine nature. His followers, who again, strictly monotheistic Jews, believed in one God, they also understood that there was something divine about Jesus and that there was something human about Jesus. Divine in so much as they saw what Jesus was doing among them, the miracles he performed, the things that no one else except for God could do, and human in so much as he's right in front of their face. In Jesus, there is a human and a divine nature. We look to Luke chapter 2 and we see that Jesus grew in three areas. Luke 2 says he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature and he grew in favor with both God and men. There is a maturing process in the human Jesus. He grew in wisdom. That means he didn't have all the wisdom all at once. That there was a process that Jesus grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. You know, Jesus didn't come six foot one. Jesus grew, and then he grew in favor with both God and man, with the people around him, and with his Father in heaven. In Philippians 2, we read that the divine Jesus came to earth in human form. Read it with me on the screens. Who being in very nature God, this is Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. 
and being found in appearance as a man, huh, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That the divine son came to earth was an act of humility. And he didn't consider him and his father's relationship in being one, something to be used to his own advantage here on earth. In humbling himself, Jesus took on limitation. An optional humil- or a, a, a humility, what's the word I'm saying? Like He took on uh, limitation as a result of his humility in coming to live and to experience life as you and I do. So, it is right then to say that Jesus the Son, in Matthew 24, speaks from his humanity. That the time of his return was not yet revealed to him at that present time and place. And think ahead in Matthew to when Jesus is praying to his Father in the garden. And if you're familiar with the Easter story, this shows up in it where Jesus says, like, Father, if there's any way that we could go about my death in a different way, can we make that happen, please? This is another moment of Jesus' humanity on full display. Yet, through it all, Matthew 24, later, his death, Jesus is trusting in the Father's plan of redemption for all people. Jesus is trusting that the Father has a plan of redemption. And here, we think, Jesus cannot actualize the moment of his return when all of this is going to become completed. Yet, he trusts the Father. So, are you tracking with me so far? I got some like, oh yeah. I got some like Tommy Texters out there. Or, or, or you're taking notes, it's good. You're with me? Okay, I'm going to make it real easy for you. Lauren and I are getting a dog. Alright? Everybody meet Rosie. Uh-huh. So, Lauren and I are getting a dog. Her name is Rosie, and we already have her future planned out because we're those kind of puppy parents. Rosie is going to be Soul Sanctuary's resident therapy dog, all right? Yeah. Somebody's like, I come here for therapy all the time. Yes. A dog. It's great. Now, it requires a specific kind of dog and a specific kind of training to have a dog trained in a way in which they can operate as a therapy dog. And so Lauren began her painstaking search for a breeder and a trainer in order to make this dream of ours come to life. Now, Lauren found a trainer and a breeder in Manitoba, but like not in Winnipeg and not really outside of Winnipeg, like outside, outside of Winnipeg. Uh, To the point that when we had to go to, I mean, it's like free range puppies, I'm telling you, it's a great little like puppy utopia. But when we had to go there, when we had to go there, they had to send us directions. Accompanied with their directions is, there's no way you can Google map this. And I'm like, actually, you can send a coordinate pin? Yes, you can Google map it. But they didn't send a coordinate pin. What they did is they sent us the directions, like farmer directions. Farmer directions, anybody, you got this? Right? 
So it's like, go south on 59 until you're like two miles from the border. I'm like, wait, wait, what? Like two miles from the border? Like backtrack, so go to the border, read the odometer, two miles back, got it. Then it's like, turn left on Provincial Highway 941, right? I'm like, okay, 941, the street signs are this big and you're traveling at 110, you know what I'm saying? And then it's like, take left, so I take the left and it's like, drive 16 miles down this road. I'm like, okay, I'll drive 16 miles. At the seven mile mark, it'll turn to gravel. Okay, good to know. Then there's a white church on the right. Now turn right at the white church on the right. I'm like, okay, where's the white church? Where's the white church? Where's the white church? Southern Manitoba, there's white churches everywhere, right? And then we get onto the gravel road and we keep driving down the gravel road. And then it's like, turn left on this unmarked street and we're the 17th driveway on the south side of the road. Okay. Got it. I'm trusting an email that was sent point form at 3 a.m. You been there? That's a level of trust. Here's my point. We had old school directions. But I was trusting that the sender in this moment had our best interest at heart. That they had a plan which included Lauren and I. And a part of that plan was us showing up on their property. And there are times where us, as followers of Christ, trust without having the full picture. Where we, where we have a roadmap, and we follow the roadmap, and we do our best without having the full picture of what is to come. Without having a complete understanding of what all this looks like completed. One day, the purpose of our trusting will be actualized when you walk in here for a ther therapy appointment and you're bawling and Rosie comes, licks your tears and, you know, puts her chin underneath yours to keep your head up. That's the actualization of our hope. But here we go. God's plan for humanity is redemption. The hope for you and me is to be united with Christ. By humbling himself and taking on human form, Jesus limited his all-knowing divine power. And he may have limited it for a moment, but this has a practical application for you and me. That if the angels willingly obey God, and if the Son of God went to the cross without knowing the time of the plan's completion, how much more then should you and I trust that God knows what he's doing? How much more then should you and I rely on the resurrected Christ to lead our steps and our path with a full confidence that God knows what he's doing, that he has the future in control. If Jesus could go to the end of his life without knowing what came next, if he didn't know the time of his return, when this would all be actualized and this would, would all come to completion, then how much more should you and I trust? And this is the hope of the Christian life. That amongst this great tribulation, which you and I live in right now, full of suffering, full of pain, full of heartache, and full of loss, that one day our hope will be actualized when we are reunited with the resurrected Christ. That's verse 36. We're going to 51 today. Buckle in. Okay, here we go. I'm not joking. Uh, verse 37. I, I've told you to buckle in like 10 times. People are like, I'm pulling on the seatbelt. It's tight. Okay. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus speaking again, right? So for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up until the day that Noah entered the ark. 
and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Jesus is drawing a comparison between his return and the flood of Noah's time. People were hanging out, they were having a good time, they were eating, they were drinking, and they were going to weddings, which is pretty much Manitoba in the summertime. Tell me I'm wrong. Ah, you can't, right? But what happened? A flood came, and it took them away. And Jesus isn't giving us examples here for the sake of identifying when he will come back. It's not that we're going to read into this uh, apocalyptically and be like, okay, look, people are eating, people are drinking, Manitoba's going to be the center of all doom. That's not it. But eating, drinking, marrying is evidence of everyday life in luxury. It's completely unaware, it's completely unconcerned with the future coming of Christ. It's life that cares about mowing the yard in specific patterns more than taking your kids to church. Ugh. It's life that prioritizes uh, kids' sport games above every other thing. It's life of comfort. It's life of working late into the night to seal the deal instead of spiritually preparing your family. It's a life of distractions. They're not wrong things. Trust me, type eight, Enneagram. Type eight, Enneagram eight, I love straight lawns or straight lines on the lawn, right? Somebody's waving me down in the back. Uh. That's right, they're not bad things, but they are distractions if they keep us from uniting with Christ. They're distractions. And what happens to the people who are distracted, who are, about going, or who are going about their lives in a normal way? They're swept away, they're taken, the text says. That, that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus says. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be at the mill, grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other will be left. In a Western Christian world, our end, our, our, our end times theology is this. It's rapture, 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 right? And it's steeped in the Left Behind series. If you grew up in the church or you, or you grew up reading those books or maybe watching the movies, shout out to Nicolas Cage, let's go. But we haven't taken our end times theology from the Bible. We've taken what's easier for us to digest. Novels, movies, nothing wrong with them. Maybe some things. But they shouldn't be informing our whole theology. Our theology should come from a study of scripture. Think of this in reverse for a moment. When this passage is read over and over again, we have this, this image that there's a taking away and it's some like quick vaporization into heaven, right? But when we read it in light of what we just read concerning Noah, thinking it through in reverse, those taken away were the sinful. In the verse after here, we're talking about taking away. We're talking about taking away. What happens? The flood came, and what did it do? It took away. So there's two people at the mill, and one's taken away. There's two people in the field, and one's taken away. Let that mess with the, your left-behind theology for one quick moment. Lauren was joking with me this week that every time she loses me in the grocery store, she thinks the rapture happened. She thinks she's been left behind. And this comes from, you know, being raised in that, that evangelical culture which just promoted these books and promoted the movies. And I remind her that she's also a saint, if I'm gone, she's coming with me, right? Praise God. 
But it's this understanding that's deeply problematic for us. You know, all we think of is like two pilots, both Christians. Three, two, one. Right? But I think that we have these understandings because we haven't read the Bible for ourselves. We've been spoon-fed what's easy. And what's easy might not always be what's best. Sugary breakfast cereals, anybody. It's not always what's best for us. The Bible must inform everything that we believe about Jesus' return. We know that he will come from heaven. Uh, We know that he will come on the clouds. We know that he will come in the flesh with glory and power. With angels and saints at his side. We know that Christians will rejoice and unbelievers will weep. And when this will happen, no one knows. Except the Father, the Spirit, and the now resurrected Son, our Redeemer, Jesus. And our hope as followers of Christ is that on the last day, we will be raised with Christ in our bodies. Christians don't hope for some far-off, distant afterlife. We hope for fullness of life united with Christ. After this, we're going to have to do a Revelation series. But Christians don't hope for a distant afterlife. We hope for fullness of life with the resurrected Christ. In Christ. Verse 42. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Holla, Jesus is making his point. You do not know on which day the Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief would come, He would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. Homeowners, ain't that the truth? So you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. On Wednesday, Lauren and I got home from work. We're sitting on the couch on the main floor of our house debriefing our days. You know, we're just sitting on the couch, no phones, just bubbly sparkling water, sipping away and talking with each other. Next thing that happens is there is a loud crash in our basement. My first reaction I pick up my cell phone, I dial 911, I don't hit call yet, but I give it to Lauren, and I go to the kitchen butcher block, and I zhing out the biggest knife. Don't laugh at me! What would you do? You think you're alone in your house, and you hear a big crash in the basement. And so it took me 10 minutes to move from the kitchen all of 7 feet to the top of the stairs, and another 10 minutes to make it down the stairs, peeping, right, where the, the, the stairs hit the roof, and I'm just like looking with the biggest kitchen knife out. And at this point, Lauren can't see me because she's on the couch. And I, like, I reacted. I heard that, and I, I moved. And then I hear Lauren laughing. And I say, what are you laughing at? Knife drawn on the stairs. And she's like, I'm imagining what you're doing. Here's my point, as you mock me. If I had reason to believe someone with bad intentions is in my basement, then I'm going to do whatever I can to take care of that. Whatever preparation, right? I'm dialing 911. I'm being like, babe, quick. You, you're ready on this. I'm zinging the knife so it makes a sound so that they can hear it. That's how I think. 
I'm going to prepare and then react accordingly. That's me. I don't know about you. As such, Jesus is warning us. If you know that the Son of Man is coming, then prepare and live accordingly. Ladies and gentlemen, some of you are living in this life with absolutely zero urgency of the coming of Jesus. You keep telling yourself that you're going to get your relationship with God in order, but you've been telling yourself this for one year, two years, five years, ten years. You're like, one day I'm going to get my heart right with God. One day I'm going to get involved in his church. One day I'm going to build his kingdom here on earth. And you keep telling yourself that. But you're living with no sense of urgency. That we don't know the day or the hour. And it could be before I'm done. It could be in a hundred years. I mean, the Amazon's burning down, so it's probably a sign of the end times. This is what Martin Luther said. He said, Christians should live as if Christ died this morning, rose this afternoon, and is returning this evening. So I ask you, where is your sense of urgency? And are you living your life on mission? Sometimes uh, people get a little upset or they get their feathers ruffled, especially Mennonites. Love you guys. Love you guys. But because they're like, Jordan, you yell. And I'm like, I don't really yell. I just, I'm passionate. But they're like, everything is like a right here, right now thing. And I think to myself, like, I communicate that way. Yeah, it's like, this is the most important thing you've ever heard in your life. You know why? Because it is. And so I won't make apologies of reading the text this way because this is what the text is saying back to us. And so we then have to respond to it and we choose how we live and how we respond to the scriptures. All right, verse 45, let's go. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? This is Jesus, like he's just continuing, right? 46, it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. You know, if he's dishing out food as the master has instructed him, if he's doing what the master has ordered him, when the master comes back and is like, oh my dude, he's doing what I told him to do, it's going to be good for him. But suppose that servant is wicked, and he says to himself, my master's staying away a long time, and then he begins to beat his fellow servants, and, not to, uh, and then he begins to eat and to drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour he is not aware of. And you will cut him into pieces. Put that back on the screen. Please. Love you. And he will, <laughs> he will cut him into pieces. I love you. He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yo, if I could have just skipped this part today, I would have, all right? But we can't. This is how we teach. Let's talk about it. Matthew is a gospel of judgment. There's no two ways around it. Matthew is a gospel of judgment. We think back a couple weeks, the seven woes, or Pastor Jerry taught us, Jesus talking to the Pharisees. It's like, there's a special place for you guys. Jesus breaks it down for them. He makes this point over and over and over. That there is judgment. And perhaps, maybe, we've watered down the fact that there will be a just judge who is returning. 
we talk about his love and his grace purposely, intentionally, because that is also the reality of Jesus coming. The gospel message is a message of grace. But at the same time as Jesus speaks, we, our eyes are tuned in, our ears are tuned in to judgment. And we can't escape it. And we can't just like conveniently cut it out of the text. There is a judgment that will come. His love and grace are reasons to celebrate. But when was the last time that you thought about his judgment? When was the last time that with a contrite heart you went to your brother or sister in Christ and confessed your sin? And were liberated when they looked you in the eye as a member of the royal priesthood, the family of believers, and said, you are forgiven in God's sight. When was the last time you did that? If you've heard the words or, or, or proclamations of God's grace in church before, maybe you've been around here for a while. I'm specifically talking to, you know, people who have been around here, Christians. If you've heard proclamations of God's grace, and yet they seem so empty and uninspiring, you know, you hear them like singing back here about God's grace and his love for us. But you're like, ah, oh, you know, I wish Dwayne would have sung it this morning. And that's what you go home and say? Then it's revealing something here. Perhaps they're uninspiring because you've forgotten the wretchedness of your sin before God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch <laughs> like me. Right? God's grace is only amazing to us when we recognize our wretchedness before him. Now, get me straight. This is not me just like casting shame and casting guilt upon you. That's not what I'm in the business of doing. But I am in the business of teaching the word. And when I look at it, it speaks of his grace and his love. But it also speaks of a time where we will be eye to eye with our maker. And it speaks of a time which we must prepare ourselves for when the resurrected king returns as a righteous judge for the living and for the dead. Our theology, our theology shouldn't just be like a, I'm okay, you're okay, self-help therapeutic theology. That does nobody any good. It doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do me any good. You know, just patting each other on the back and be like, you'll be all right. But we should be informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me say with confidence that Jesus Christ came in appearance as a man and walked on this earth among us for the purpose of your salvation. Because we were disconnected from God, he came to bring us back into right relationship with God. And the way we do that is acknowledge who Jesus said he is and live our life in pursuit of Jesus. Live our life following his teachings, responding to that amazing grace which stretched out and met us in our darkness. And I don't know about you, but maybe you haven't met Jesus before. I mean, the story of Alyssa on the Video Weekly, the story of Leah on the Video Weekly before, that's what we're about. We're about people meeting Jesus. 
Because here's what I know, is that before I met Jesus and I looked at the life I lived, I lived a life of selfishness and a life of greed. And that's what I was on about, before Jesus had my heart. And that's, that is a vicious cycle to be trapped in. But what I know is that over a period of time, when I decided to submit myself to the following to, or for the, to the teachings of Jesus as I read in the Bible, God began a transformative work in my heart. And that work began a slow process of killing the selfishness inside of me, of killing the greed inside of me. And what I know is that I'm still in that refining process and that I know God's not done with me yet. And the truth of the matter is God's not done with you yet as long as there is a beat in your heart and breath in your lungs that he's not done with you yet. So some of you walked in here carrying the the weight and the guilt of your shame. I believe it to be true that he's not done. And the question is, how will you live in response to what Jesus taught? Will you take him up on his offer of life and life to the full? John 10, 10, that's what he says. I have come that you may have life and life to the full. And I'll tell you, it's the fullest life I've ever lived. It's probably the hardest life I've ever lived. I told Lauren, if I was not a Christian, I'd be a con man. Because it's way easier. It's not the easiest life, but it is the fullest life and it is the most rewarding life. And my invitation to you is to take Jesus up on that offer of life. Because you'll never be the same. I don't promise you lots of money. I don't promise you an easy road. But what I promise you is communion with your creator. Is relationship with the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. All right. Let's stand. I invite you to close your eyes as we pray. I pray a prayer this morning that has been prayed by Christians for centuries. And so we join in the host of Christians, both living and dead, who have made this their prayer unto God. Father God, imprint upon our hearts a dread of your judgment and a grateful sense of your goodness to us. Make us both afraid and ashamed to offend you. Yet above all, keep in our minds a lively remembrance of that great day in which we must give strict account of our thoughts, words, and actions to him who you have appointed judge over the living and of the dead. Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In times of old, the one giving a blessing would extend hands. Those receiving a blessing would do... Likewise, if you want a blessing this morning, I simply invite you to extend hands. It's not magic. It's a prayer that the Holy Spirit leads you and guides you this week. Here we go. Soul Sanctuary, as you go, may you go with the confidence that Jesus is returning soon. May you go and live in the mystery of his return, fixing your hope firmly in God's plan of redemption. May you go and live in the urgency of his return, fixing your eyes upon Christ above all else, seeking him and taking a next step in your relationship with Jesus. And may you go acutely aware of your wretchedness, yet acutely aware of his amazing grace.
May you walk confidently in your sainthood. And may you be strengthened by the power of the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Go in peace, be blessed, and we'll see you next week.